Hello, this is David Runciman, and this is a special weekend edition of Talking Politics. We'll be back with you next week to pick up on the American presidential election, and we'll be talking about what happened there. But as a little bit of light relief, I'm talking today to the comedian Ahir Shah, who is a very political comedian. He studied politics at university. And he's also, as you'll hear, quite angry about some of the things that have been going on, including Brexit. There is a little bit of swearing. So if you don't like swearing, you might not like that part of the interview. But it's a chance to hear a slightly different voice talking about some of the things that we've been talking about around this table a lot over the past few months. I started by asking Ahir when he wakes up in the morning now, four months on from Brexit, and when we spoke about a week before the American election, which looms larger in his mind, Brexit or Trump? Brexit still looms because it's constant and every day. And occasionally I just remember that this country did that to itself. And I start laughing because of how dumb it is. But then I remember that I live here and that becomes really annoying because I'm like, oh, oh, right. Yeah. So the mug who's going to have to deal with the consequences of this is me. But then equally, the American election is also terrifying because I'm going there in three weeks. And if Trump wins, I probably won't be allowed in the country anymore. So that's a... Do you find Trump funny? Because I've been thinking about this. I watched the stand up that he and Hillary did. And he's... The Al Smith. Yeah. And he's kind of not funny. Well... But... See, this is where I disagree. I think that... I think Trump is extremely funny, but that proves that comedy is deeply sinister because the way that entertainment has been played throughout this election, I watched the debates eating popcorn, was very entertained during the whole thing and had to constantly remind myself that this isn't a piece of entertainment. It's actually something that the fate of the planet rests on not going entirely belly up. Like, Trump's jokes weren't getting any sort of good response because the content of them was horrible. But from a technical perspective and everything like that, you realise that, oh god, this is a guy telling funny jokes. And it's because what a joke is, is essentially a method of psychological manipulation, that we finally realise that everything a comedian does is deeply sinister. I thought the one about Melania having given the exact same speech as Michelle... Yes. Was, was a good joke, but he kind of killed it in a very Trump way in that he was telling it pretty well, but he doesn't know when to stop. Because that was one of the very few that he was capable of doing at his own expense. Exactly. Uh, and that was the big difference. Right? Which, yes, exactly. Which, or rather at his wife's expense. Yeah, yes, exactly. Which is as close to his own expense as he can conceive of getting. So when he was able to do that, that I think elicited laughs from the crowd and everything like that. I found some of the more deeply obviously inappropriate and brutal attacks that he was doing at this day. I was rolling on the floor laughing because I was like, how could you remotely think that this is a smart thing for you to be doing in this situation? So I don't know whether I was laughing at the joke or laughing at him. Uh, Did you find her funny at all? I mean, uh, she, she had better material, I think. She had better material, but I think that this is because uh, I imagine comics prefer writing for Democrats than... Uh, and, but she delivered it kind of in a semi-human way. I think she took ownership of the fact that she's never been a great orator and that's not her principal skill set. But so she had those jokes of, I'm the life and soul of every party I've been to and I've been to three. It's a shame that we regard politics as entertainment to the extent that we do because I don't necessarily want... Well, I do want someone who's excellent at telling jokes because I just want Barack Obama again. But I don't necessarily want someone who's fantastic orator or show person i want someone who can actually run things obama is funny right as you said obama is the funniest 
conventionally funny stand-up president, presumably, yes. ever. What's he got? Because I watched his last one, his last correspondence dinner, and I just thought he was as good as you can be at doing that kind of thing. Is it because he's coming to the end and he was a bit looser? I think that the fact that he's coming to the end probably takes some of the weight off. I mean, you're not going to get someone midway through a first term doing a mic drop at the end of a... Though famously, he was funny the night he killed Bin Laden as well, (laughs) wasn't he? I mean, that was... Th- th- he did the correspondence yeah, dinner the I night. Yeah, but and- if I had that level of adrenaline running through me, then I'd probably be pretty funny myself. <laughs> also, uh, I think that that's probably a deeply necessary thing. I think that you can't just come out entirely ashen-faced and uh, just be like, no reason. <laughs> it's, I- I've definitely not been in a room ordering the assassination of someone. <laughs> I think uh, partly he's a very charismatic individual, uh, probably... I would think not in the same way as Bill Clinton, necessarily. I think I I still watch sort of old clips of Bill Clinton and even 20 years apart looking at it through a screen. I was just like, I will do whatever you say now, uh, because that's the... But he wasn't funny, Clinton. No, he wasn't. Uh, I think it's just that sort of... It's um. But he was sincere and he was serious and he was gripping and he was smart and he was all that. Well, I think it's like what they talk about uh, Steve Jobs having the reality distortion field around him, which is a very rare thing to happen. Jobs wasn't funny, but he had that field around him similar to Clinton. But Obama, I think, just is a politician you'd like to have a beer with in the best possible sense, where I would like to have a beer with him at the end of a workday where I know that he's actually done something productive rather than get hammered with him at 11 o'clock in the morning, which I'm sure would be very fun with Nigel Farage, but I wouldn't want to know what he was doing with the rest of his day. Do you have any desire to see Trump win for your professional purposes? I get asked this a bit secretly in your heart of heart of hearts. Don't you just want to see what would happen? And this is assumed that it's a serious question. You study this for a living. You're never going to get another chance to find out what happens when a man like that becomes president of the United States. But is it the same for you? Do you have a little part of you that kind of thinks this will be good for me? As rampantly narcissistic as stand-up is as a profession, I don't think I come anywhere near the level of accepting the victory of actual fascism in the most powerful country on the face of the earth for my own marginal gains. So so academics, take the biscuit with that one then. Because <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to Brexit. So that we're four months on from that. What have those four months been like for you? Because we've talked to various people about this. For some people, the night itself is still the thing that they go back to. They're haunted by, by what they felt when they suddenly realised, and it's at different points in the night for different people. Some people claim they saw it straight away. Some people it was much later on in the evening. Oh my God, this is going to happen. And then some people, kind of the night it happened and it was a weird thing, but then nothing happened. There was a kind of phony war. And it's only now in the last two or three weeks or maybe since the Tory party conference that they've been thinking, this thing is real. The night was a very big deal. I remember talking with people just before the polls had closed and Nigel Farage appeared to be conceding. And they were like, oh, well, at least that's put that to bed. That's going to be okay. Uh, and the conspiracy theory now, which I only heard the other day, I hadn't heard this before, that the concession was fake in order to move the markets because one of his backers said, if you get on TV and concede, yeah. the markets will move for 20 minutes and I can make a fortune and then you can come back on and say I didn't mean it. To be fair, if that if he was smart enough to do that, then fair play to the lad. That's uh, that's I still loathe him with a passion, but... 
by God, for that 20 minutes, caning it. So where were you on the night? So I I was on the Isle of Wight in a travel lodge alone, eating cold dominoes and drinking a six-pack of lager. And I was, by the time that 6am rolled around, the saddest person on an entire landmass. It was when Newcastle came about and the Remain victory wasn't as strong as we were hoping for. And you're like, okay, this is a big deal. And then uh, immediately was on my phone playing an elaborate game of fuck tennis with fellow liberal metropolitan elites via text message (laughs) like I looked over my uh, texts a few weeks later and it was just me and other 20 somethings in different parts of the country just repeatedly texting the word fuck to each other the part that really angered me was when Farage used the sentence without a single bullet being fired this obviously being a matter of days after I'd been in Parliament Square for the vigil for Joe Cox with a lot of other people who knew that that was not the case. And there was a problem with uh, violence surrounding all of this as well, which has only come to pass further with the sustained increase in hate crime since. But as impactful as the day was, it does seem to have been this sort of continually unfolding horror of every time I read, oh, and that's a man who got beaten up in the street for speaking Polish, or that's a woman who had the hijab teared off her head uh, while walking down the street. Not just from the economic side of everything being so deeply predictable, of course there's going to be a sterling crash in response. Like, who wouldn't expect that? And every negative thing has been so readily predictable, as far as I was concerned, that even if, and I accept for some people, the short-term economic shock was seemingly a worthwhile price to pay, and even if I were of that opinion, which I'm not, I cannot for a second countenance a view that any of the social problems that have arisen and will continue to arise from this, particularly as a member of an ethnic minority and from an immigrant family, I cannot countenance anyone saying that that doesn't matter or that's not important enough that other things will be worth it. Nothing can be worth that. And did you, in the run-up to the referendum, did you have an inkling it was coming? I think that I didn't want to believe that it could happen, and that coloured my entire view of the thing. You weren't alone Um, in that, obviously. Yes, exactly. The the Um, wanting things to happen because you don't want to believe in the opposite is a fairly prevalent political... But even in terms of the polls, for example, I can I cannot want to believe that Trump is going to win, but at least polling seems to see me out in some way. Whereas every poll that was showing a marginal leave lead or it being very tight or very close, we just very readily dismissed that, oh yeah, but it can't actually be like that because people aren't going to buy the... Because the polls always get it wrong when they say the thing that's the opposite <laughs> yeah. of what we want to happen. Yeah. Exactly. I assumed that I lived in a country that was different to the one I now believe that I lived in. So you think that the the country you believed you lived in didn't actually exist? Yeah. Really? So that there was a kind of veil over the nastiness and this just pulled it off rather than the referendum itself and its result being the trigger for the nastiness? Well, I think that the referendum and its result legitimised a lot of the nastiness and allowed it to come out of the woodwork, as it were. And I always... That like there were these two differing almost conceptions of Britain and the future of Britain, and I felt so wedded to the notion that my unjustifiably wedded to the notion that the vision that I felt part of would be the one that succeeded, and it seems increasingly apparent that that was a deeply unfounded and in some ways naive belief. 
And did you feel as a young person, you're 24? 25. 25, okay, so yeah, but still young. Uh, I'm 25, to, oh, don't, you don't understand anything, can't. So do you feel... It's my room and I'm going to paint it black. Did you feel after the referendum the kind of chasm that some people think that the polling evidence suggests between the generations? Did you think this is a country where old people are deciding my future for me? Uh, yes, uh, to an extent, was ever thus, right? I mean, the, there's a limited amount that one can really be angry about that as a young person, because you're just like, well, we need to pull our finger out more, like, because you can't just abnegate responsibility entirely. But it did feel like a generation who, not content with pulling the ladder up after them, instead decided to set fire to every ladder factory in the countries and all instruction manuals for building ladders so that we would uh, very definitely never get the uh, chances that they got. Yeah. You, so you did feel something? <laughs> Just a touch, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying that we should disenfranchise the old, but I think it probably should be weighted depending on how long it <laughs> So we started this podcast, we wanted to cover this general election, which seemed kind of interesting to us in 2015. Would Ed Miliband possibly win? It all seems so tame now. And then it <laughs> happened. And no, the Tories won again. And then suddenly politics went the way it is now. Yes. So the first thing to happen in that sequence was Corbyn. When Corbyn happened, what did you feel? I was very excited about that because of what I thought he represented. I was very annoyed that as a person who follows politics very closely I didn't feel as though even I heard anything from Labour in the lead up to the general election defending the notion that they weren't responsible for the global financial crisis until like March or something like that and just the idea of someone saying actually building schools and hospitals didn't cause the Lehman Brothers to collapse etc etc felt very refreshing in the aftermath of that becoming increasingly aware that ideological purity was always going to be prized above the prospect of ever actually making a tangible difference in people's lives, which can only really be achieved through the holding of power. I, I didn't think that it was possible for someone who had spent so much of their lives trying to affect some form of positive change, whatever that might be from their perspective, to finally be given the opportunity and office to maybe put that into practice to instead put stuff like ideological purity ahead of that. When did you reach that conclusion? So at what point? You know, when each appointment was made and when John McDonnell became shadow chancellor and Seamus Milne became director of yeah, well, communications. That was pretty early that, well, it was pretty early. But like, even then I was like, okay, but let's give this a bit longer. Let's give this a bit longer. But eventually you realise that there was going to be not only no compromise with the electorate, there was going to be no compromise with the parliamentary party, there was no, going to be no compromise with reality. Uh, or really anything. But what about then when Corbyn collided with Brexit? Because the most interesting thing that came out of Corbyn's re-election the second time round was the exit poll, if that's the right word for it, asking people after they'd voted how they voted, that showed that the younger you are, the more likely you were to vote for Corbyn until you reached the 18 to 24-year-olds yeah. who voted for Owen Smith. And anecdotally, the reason for that is that people who are 18 to 24 brexit is by far the bigger deal for them yes that's the thing that they are most anxious and most furious about and the offer of a second referendum was enough mm. and for those people corbyn is partly to blame i don't know why it's 18 to 24 i don't know what happens when you get to be 25 you can tell us right <laughs> but it's the 18 to 24 year group yeah. have abandoned corbyn over brexit Yes, and I'm not surprised by that in the slightest. Back when I still was a member of the Labour Party, went to a rally, I'm doing inverted commas, 
pro-Europe rally that was organised by him and that he was speaking at, and it was a Leave rally. So it's not, there's no... Really? Uh, yeah. Because of the things he didn't say, or because of... No, did... because of the things he said. He went through a litany of... Uh, all of the terrible things about the European Union followed with effectively, but the Tories are going to be in government perpetually and this is the only way that we can have any check on them. So there you go. Right. And I thought that for a while it might be going around the Paul Mason line, which was a line that I respect, which is he's no fan of the EU, but knew that if we exit the time that we are in at the moment, then you have to look at the contingent things around it the exit is going to be marshalled by the right of the Conservative Party. It's not going to be a workers' Brexit or whatever whatever that would look like. Uh, it's going to be, as we see now, soundbite chaotic Tory Brexit. And I thought that maybe that's the one that Corbyn could have told, which was basically, look, I'm no fan of this institution, but you've got to weigh things up, uh, the pros and cons in any given situation. And lesser of two evils, even if you want to go with that, is going to be the Remain vote. But I think in a land of no compromise uh, that he lives in. Uh, There's no compromise. Yes, exactly. So I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you this or not, but you brought it up. So you said when you were a member of the Labour Party? Yes. You are now a member of no party? Yes. Are you looking for a party to join? Uh, no. Have you given up on that whole political party thing? I think that I'm enjoying the plague on all your houses thing at the moment. What would a party look like that would, would do it for you now? Because there's a real question about what's going to happen to the party structure in Britain because it doesn't yeah. fit a lot of people's perspectives on politics. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that at the time being, a party that would do something for me would require me to have a time machine and a vinyl of D-Reams, things can only get better. So I'm now going to ask you a pretentious question, which is, is the comedy a kind of vehicle for changing people's minds or is it just... Yes, Absolutely. I also very much like it when someone who is of an entirely different political stripe to me who comes out and then after the show will just be like, hey, that was really interesting. Disagree with a lot of it, but... But you're funny. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and that's nice because at least you've got someone thinking about something uh, and you've shown that you aren't so closed off that you're only accessible to an echo chamber who will agree with absolutely everything that you say. Also, just having people say subsequently, like... I thought that, but I've never heard anyone say it, or I've never heard anyone say it like that. And that's certainly what I feel when listening to comedians who talk about, be it like politics, society, love, family, all of those things. Whenever I hear someone articulate something that I've been feeling, it just makes you feel that little bit less alone in your position. And considering how easy it is to feel atomized in our own insignificance, uh, to do anything to change things. I think that's quite a valuable thing to be able to do. Ahir Shah, who is touring at the moment, and if you want to catch his show after the election results, he's in Oxford on the 10th and the 11th of November, in Nottingham on the 12th, in Poole on the 19th, and in Durham on the 20th. Do go. He's very funny and he is very political. Join us again this coming week. As always, on Thursday morning, we'll have recorded on Wednesday morning, so we will have recorded our reaction to the results pretty much in real time. You'll hear how shocked we are, how wrong we were, maybe how right we were, and what we think is coming next. Join us then. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.